You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's staring at the back of his hand so he can see his bones wearing those x-ray specs he bought from the back of a comic book. It's Mr. Jeff McLarge-Huge. I can see the bones, Bill. I feel like I'm probably going to give myself cancer wearing these, but I don't know if it'll be hand cancer or eye cancer. It's the kind of cancer you get from looking through red dye feathers. Is, but that, whatever. is that really all it is? Yes. Yeah, that's all they were. How you doing? I'm okay. I got a lot of uh, a lot of my mind because going forward into today's worst song ever, we won't spoil the surprise, but it got me listening to a bunch of different music that's not usually in my wheelhouse. And ah. yeah, and then one subject that kind of like came up in my mind because in the last week or the week before we were talking about you know, musicians that aren't musicians and what qualifies and what doesn't yes. and all that. And then there's this artist that comes up. Uh, he used to come up like as a commercial on Snapchat or whatever. His name is Charlie Puth. Oh, I know him. Well, I don't know him personally, but I know who he is. Yeah. Apparently he's very popular. I, I don't really know much about him. But he was talking about his new song called Light Switch. And he was actually like really excited about the fact and he says... There's even a sound effect of a light switch in the song. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> wow. Whoa. Yeah. Hey, woo, go, go all out. Yeah. Uh, stand back, Pink Floyd. Charlie Puth has a light switch sound in his song. Yeah. Wow. Woo. My next single is going to be called Race Car. Guess yeah. what's going to be in that? Yeah. A light switch. How avant garde. Yeah. Turning on the interior lights in his car. Oh, shit. The battery's dead. <laughs> has he, has, I wonder if he's ever listened to any of Roger Waters' solo records, which is pretty much Roger Waters sings, accompanied by the Radio Shack home sound effects collection. <laughs> so you get somebody like Charlie Booth, who isn't a musician in the traditional sense. He does a right. lot of, like, he loops his own stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll, like, record a couple of things on the guitar, a couple of drum beats on, like, a, either a drum machine or just... Right. You know, banging on a desk or whatever. Yeah. And loops them all together with, uh, like, GarageBand or whatever. And I think you said you were telling me he records a lot of it, like, on his iPhone? Yeah. I watched a documentary kind of, well, a documentary slash interview with him. A documentary about slash interview with him. I don't know why, but I I did. I found myself watching it. Kind of what he does is. You couldn't stop staring at that eyebrow of his. That's what it was. (laughs) I kept wondering where the last name Puth came from. Like, maybe he's Norwegian. No, and, and he he sort of records in the morning on his, his iPhone, and he'll do things like he'll hear a bird sing and try and catch that as a recording. He'll make some noise with, like, his coffee maker and record that, or he'll he'll sit and clap a, like a beat out and yeah. record that. And, and then he goes back and he assembles it using GarageBand or some other Pro Tools type tool. 
Yeah. And then builds the song around whatever those sounds are to make it rich and much, much more poppy. And it's interesting. I think it's an interesting way to do it. He also does like online, like learn to write music like Charlie Puth things that you mm-hmm. can pay to go and j- join. Yeah. And apparently he's, he's a Berkeley student. So like he knows his music, he knows his stuff. Yeah. But he just doesn't seem to use a lot of it in his albums. Well, so his audience is, there's two groups of audience for Charlie Puth. Yep. The first group is like, it's generally like girls age 12 to 16 or so. That seems to be the age bracket for what he's writing for. And the right. other group are advertising executives who go like, <laughs> oh my God, I want this song in my song, in my, you know, international light switch consortium commercial. <laughs> and what you would, that's where I hear his stuff more, more often, I think, is in yep. movie trailers and car commercials and other stuff. Yeah, the thing that really stood out whenever I listened to, I listened like two or three of his songs, and I was, it, it's not that I hated it, it's just, it's not for me. It's, yeah. you know what I mean? Well, it's, that's a pop music thing, though. Like, pop music, it's, we're not the audience for pop music, even though no. I, I, I keep my, I try to keep my feet in it just because I like to be contemporary. A phrase I like is, I, I can't disappear up my own asshole, you know, huh. just listening to the stuff that I always listen to. So I try and right. listen to new things and things that are popular and common because I always find stuff that I do like. Him less so, yeah. But like the auto tune, it's like all right. If <laughs> if you can't sing, you can't sing. You know what are you yeah. doing? And as far as like finding new music goes, because I don't listen to terrestrial radio and all that, I think the majority of the times that I find new bands that I like, it's because they're on you know video game soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah, I can see that's, that. Yeah, that's my exposure. It's like ah, uh, I'm really getting bored of my music collection. I'm going to have to buy the new Gran Turismo, I guess. <laughs> hey, what song is this one? It's called Light Switch. It's weird. <laughs> There's no light switch in this game at all. I do get a little bit lost in the auto-tune stuff, too. I find that really irritating uh, in a very, very short amount of time. So I can, see, I can see your version to it. All right. So before we get our show started, I do have the very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Uh-oh. Yeah. Everybody always talks about the largest animal on earth and it's always i always, uh, I always do that's yeah. a topic of conversation in my house every single day yeah it's a commentary question and all that it's uh it's a sperm whale isn't it or the blue whale it's a, a sperm blue whale. whale blue whale is the largest animal ever lived on earth so that's fine but that's that's a mammal jeff i'm looking for what is the largest reptile the largest reptile yeah uh-huh. all right now are we talking weight or length uh, yeah, I, I knew there was going to be a, a qualifying question. There has to be a qualifying question when we're talking about size, so. All right. Well, you can tell me at the end of the show. You don't have to tell okay, me Okay, very good. Yep. All right. So this is going to be the week beginning January the 23rd, and whose turn? Your turn? It's your turn. Your turn to start. It is my turn. It seems to fall on, on my turn every single time we have one of these, which has become the theme for this year. But mm. apparently, I'm trying personally to rehabilitate the reputation of former President Richard M. Nixon. Because on January 23rd, 1973, U.S. President Richard M. Nixon announced that an accord had been reached to end the Vietnam War. American hero. <laughs> he was a bad guy, but all the things that we find are good things. Yep. Yeah, Vietnam was not a good engagement for the United States. It was bad foreign policy all the way around and... We definitely came out the the worst end for our involvement there. So yeah, Vietnam was not popular. It seems, you know, you had all the like the draft dodgers and right. 
you know, so many musicals like Hair and Godspell, you know, at that time were right. actively protesting the, you know, the Vietnam War. Right. I, I, I honestly, I've never heard anybody been like pro Vietnam. Have you? No, it's, I mean, because I think, you know, a lot of it is that the reason for the war existing is, for lack of a better description, unclear. So the public was sold a bill of goods that this was like the first step in a communist takeover of Southeast Asia, most of which were places people didn't know where it was anyway. There was right. no clearly defined enemy. It wasn't like World War II where there had been an invasion from Germany into France or something like that. And ultimately, we ended up – we found ourselves fighting against a lot of people who were third world country mm -hmm. and propping up governments that successively failed year after year after year. And much like, I guess, our involvement in Afghanistan and Iran, I mean, uh, Iraq, etc. in the years since, the mm. end result of it was like, well, what are we supposed to do here? What are we trying to do? We're not, are we invading North Vietnam or not? No, we're not. Yep. Okay. So why are we here? Much like the Gulf War, the reasons that we ended up in this war were fraudulent anyway. The Gulf of Tonkin mm. incident was- Yeah, uh, I was about was to bring up the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Not a real thing. Yeah, they said that they uh, there was a PT boat, an American PT boat that they fired on. It's like, well, let's go get them then. Right. But it actually, yeah, it never, it never, never happened. happened. It came out nope. many years later that it never happened. Yep. And uh, and much like uh, some of our more recent uh, excursions, we didn't really have a good exit strategy. We didn't have an exit strategy at all. That's that's I think yeah. one of the reasons. And 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 war was defined by like, well, how many bullets does it take to kill a North Vietnamese guy? Because it's we, we're spending fewer bullets than North Vietnam is. Eventually, they're going to run out of bullets, and then the war will be over. It's like that. That's not how wars are prosecuted, <laughs> man. You, you can thank McNamara for that kind of uh, military thinking. But so anyway, Nixon got us out. Yeah. Props to Dick Nixon for that. Yeah. Yeah. Weird that it comes down to economics. We're never going to get out of here otherwise. All right. Hey, politics. So anyway, moving on to January the twenty fourth. Of 2016, the TV show The X-Files returns to television after 13 years, bringing back the originals, David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson. Or do you say Gillian? Is it Gillian or Gillian? I say Gillian. I don't remember that that 2016 revival, I'm saying that with air quotes, of The X-Files lasted long. I love The X-Files when it was originally on TV. Oh, that was insanely popular in the 90s, yeah. Right? And it went off the air in, like, I want to say 2003? 2004 or something like that it was way back yeah david duchovny did not have a thriving film career julian anderson did not have a thriving film career they didn't do a lot of tv or movies after that they kind of with where a lot of very popular tv stars sort of ended up when their show ended yeah. is they either being typecast or playing significantly smaller parts and other things like do you, i don't know if you remember zoolander do you remember zoolander I did not enjoy that movie, so no, I don't. Well, really David Duchovny was the hand model. His hand was like in the glass jar. Okay. And so he was in the movie for like twelve minutes, right? He was also the funniest part of the movie. But in that interim time, there was a movie, the X Files movie. Yes. Which didn't do well, and what was hilarious was when the X Files movie was playing. Right. David Duchovny at the time was dating Tia Leone, or yeah, was he married her? her? Yeah, married her. Uh, and they were living in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, right yeah. next door over here. They were living in Peyton Arum. Yep. And they went to the Dartmouth Mall to go watch a movie. I don't remember what they went to see, but it wasn't X-Files. Right. They used to go yeah. to my brother's restaurant for dinner. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, my friend was the t- uh, girl at the ticket booth, and she was like, dude, David and Company came in today. <laughs> nice. The funny thing with, like, the X-Files movie was the show was only getting ratings of, of like, um, 1.2 million people a week. Yep. And then the show went off the air. Right. So your audience for a movie is only about 1.2 million people. That's yeah. not enough to make back the money. It like it's it's really hard to get someone interested in that kind of intellectual property when it's converted to the screen from television if they don't already watch the show on television. Because right. you have to go in with you're gonna have to hand out index cards. You're like, okay, who's this guy? Why is he important? How come the people are laughing when this guy shows up? Because all yeah. of these things are tied back to the myth building and storytelling in the show. When we get yeah. to 2016, a lot mm-hmm. of the things that made the show work in the 90s. If I remember correctly, the cigarette smoking man, he wasn't in the show. The guy who was the head of the FBI, he also wasn't in the show. The lone gunmen who were like the, they had a super short-lived spinoff. I think it lasted two episodes and got canceled. The lone gunmen who were like conspiracy theorists that interacted with Fox Mulder, they weren't in the show. So I, I don't even know who the audience for that was. You honestly right now could be just like pulling stuff straight out of your ass because I have watched exactly one episode of The X-Files and you watched me watch it. I watched yeah, it at your that's house. Right. That's right. Yep. And you watched it at my house and it was like, this is the best episode of the show. You don't have to watch any other episodes because <laughs> this is the one that's the best one. It's the one with Peter Boyle. And there's a thing where like the nostalgia of something isn't always enough to carry it. Yeah. You know, they brought back X-Files and everybody was like, woo they're bringing back X-Files. And then like, hey, did you watch it? Uh, no, I, I didn't have time. You know, like we all kind of like moved on to other yeah. things and, and other parts of our lives and stuff like that. Right. And it's hard to draw a new audience with something that relies on the old audience being part of the, the nostalgia. Yes. I, nostal- I have a hard time with nostalgic TV anyway. Or anything else really that really requires you to be something from the past to enjoy whatever it is now. So sure. I, I can I, see I, why it wasn't successful. Just saying stuff like that, the, the first thing that came to my mind was the album that was like 20 years in the making there from Guns N' Roses, Chinese right. Democracy. Yeah. It's like, I don't think they would, I mean, they didn't pick up any new fans with that album, I don't think, you know? They didn't lose any old fans. That's I guess that's a thing. Yeah, they didn't lose their old fans, but I know a lot of their old fans that just did not like Chinese Democracy at all. So moving on to the 25th, what do we got? January 25th, 1870. The very first soda fountain is patented by Gustavus Daos. Now, he may not have invented it. Mm-hmm. There may have been similar things where you could go to a drugstore or some other general store and have someone whip up a tasty treat for you. A lime but, Ricky. But Gustavus does my favorites. But Gustavus Daos is the guy that patented it. And I think he patented the three, the, the soda surgers, which, uh, you know, sent the, the seltzer water into your glass. That would then be mixed with any myriad of strange-ass syrups and sugars to make delicious things. Like, ultimately, Dr. Pepper is where that came from, as did Coca-Cola. Right. Which used to really pep up the drinkers, Bill, because it had cocaine in it. (laughs) I just saw a video, like one of those sponsored videos or whatever the hell, on Facebook, where apparently there's a one or two places left in America that still you can get Coke that way. Yeah. Where they shoot the seltzer into the thing with the syrup and yeah. the guy's like stirring it up with like a, a glass straw or whatever. Even at my parents' restaurant, there were two ways that you could get Coca-Cola. So yeah. you could get Coca-Cola as pre-mixed in which it comes in these big like 55-gallon drums. 
that are yep. carbonated that pump up through your soda squirter at yep. the bar. Or you, you get premix, which you get a container of syrup, and then whatever soda water you use, it mixes in the gun. So okay. it's not super unusual. Even like if you go to, I don't know, pick a fast food restaurant that has a, an old school, you know, with the little levers soda machine. Yeah. That's premix. So that's the yeah. one you go to. It's going to mix from a cylinder of syrup with some soda water. Right. But what I'm talking about are the ones with the the big ball like things they right. push. You know, there used to be a drugstore down the street from me when I was like, I mean, a a baby, like barely able to walk mm-hmm. and stuff like that, called Senecals. Right. And my father used to go down there to buy his you know cigarettes or whatever, and they they used to have those those right. soda jerks as they call them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It always confused me when I was a kid. I would see commercials on TV. And they would say, you know, they would be advertising whatever the popular soda, you know, tooth rot at the time was. And it says, you know, available in your, you know, your grocers, uh, coolers, and soda fountains. And I didn't know that those were called soda fountains. Yes. I just knew that a water fountain in the park had like a statue that like shot water. And in my imagination, there was one of those with with like orange soda, which sounded Mm. awesome. Yes. Uh, we had one at the pharmacy near my house too, and that was where I learned to love Lime Rickies, which is my favorite soda fountain treat. They also made really good milkshakes, and I used to get vanilla Coke, which was post-mixed syrup uh, with a splash of vanilla syrup as well, and then soda water stirred up that was delicious before you could get it in bottles and stuff. Ah, I I do I do love my vanilla Coke in the bottle, so... All right, moving on to the 26th, January the 26th, 1954. Groundbreaking begins at Disneyland over in Anaheim, California. Oh. I've never been to that one. I haven't been to that one either. I've never been to California, now that I say that. Oh. Um, I know been to uh, Disney World a few times, but never, never Disneyland. I know from reading the book Fast Food Nation, because I'm pretty sure that's where this is from, the reason that Walt Disney ended up building Disney World in Florida is because he couldn't control the real estate around Disneyland. Uh-huh. He wanted to manage all of the restaurants and like all of the experience of the park outside the park oh. and inside the park and yes. couldn't do it in California. Oh, his original idea for like Disney World and Epcot Center like boarded on insanity. Yeah. And ultimately that's kind of what it what it is. It's why there's no I guess there's there aren't like you know streets and streets of fast food restaurants around Disney World the same way there are around Disneyland. I did go out to California a couple of times, uh, none of which involved me going to Disneyland, but we had the opportunity. Uh, right. My brother and I were out there, and we were trying to figure out like what we you know plan our day and plan our week. We were out there for five days. I was like, well, do you want to go to Six Flags Magic Mountain or do you want to go to Disneyland? He goes, well, pros and cons. I go, uh, well, Disneyland is Disneyland. And Six Flags Magic Mountain is magic. No, and we had already had been to Disney World, and Disneyland is comparatively smaller. Right. And I said, Six Flags Magic Mountain is where Kiss filmed Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, Norman. And he looks at me and goes, all right, bottom line, which one has more roller coasters? I was like, Six Flags. <laughs> well, it's not like you're going to run into Kiss at Six Flags. So yeah, yeah, I guess- yeah. You know? Bottom line, which one has more roller coasters? I was like right. Six Flags. So, yeah, we went to Six Flags instead of Disneyland. It would be yep. funny, though, if you're there and you're like, aren't you Gene Simmons? Look, these churros aren't going to sell themselves. You know, <laughs> no, Gene Simmons just kind of like barks in that movie. Yeah. 
He barks yes. and breathes fire. Yep. If Gene Simmons breathes fire, maybe we have our culprit, Jeff. What do we go, what do we have for the next day? We do not have our culprit. <laughs> January 27th, 1984. I can't believe you let in with that. That's so funny. <laughs> Michael Jackson is burned doing filming for a Pepsi commercial. That's the fact. But the thing is, like, yeah. MTV ran the footage of that mercilessly for months. It was oh, on right. every every. I'm sure Kurt Loder had PTSD from having to talk about it after like the first month. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it was a big deal. Michael Jackson right. was the biggest star in music at the time. I mean, that was like in between Thriller and Bad. I guess Bad was Bad was his next album. Yeah, that yeah, that was when he was touring with the rest of it with his brothers, right? When they did the Victory oh, tour. Oh, yes, that's right. And, and it, it was, was super it was huge by, by Pepsi. Yeah, it was sponsored by Pepsi. Yes. All right. So what had happened was um, one of the pyrotechnics kind of like exploded, and at that time, uh, one of the styles and Michael Jackson was partaking in such style was what they would call jerry curl yes it was kind of like a, a very heavy gel um that people with you know really curly hair would put in to kind of like loosen it up or whatever and that that just like lit right up on his Tur- head. turns out that stuff doesn't like fire yeah yeah, yeah. well actually it, it really it, do- it really loves fire yeah sure. and uh it doesn't go out easy so what would have been had his hair, I guess, been dry would have been like they sort of whack him on the head a few times and then it goes out. His head went up like a Roman candle. Yeah, and he ended up with second degree burns and all kinds of like issues that came out of that. That yeah, uh, but yeah, burns to his scalp and his face. Pepsi, to their credit, settled out of court for one point five million dollars. And to his credit, Jackson didn't keep any of that money. He right. donated it to the Brotman Medical Center. In California, and they named it the Michael Jackson Bird Center. After him. that's that's very cool. So yeah, it, some good comes out of it for sure. It sucks that he got burned because it. I think that started his real shift into like weird plastic surgery disasters. Yeah, it's certainly why he wore wigs all the time. Right. You know, because there was sections of his head that the hair just didn't grow back. Yeah. Right. Like we said, I'm glad some good came out of it. But yeah, that was a big. A big incident. That was a crux. That was a, a point in time, which is why I, we have this show. I think the bad thing that came out of it was that the spectacle of that was so newsworthy and it was on so much that the idea of spectacle for news became way more accepted, I think, in like especially television journalism. Yeah. And and it was because of like our, and I'm saying our, the royal hour, you and me and the rest of the world who like would watch MTV for six hours a day and go yeah. like, oh, here comes Kurt Loder again. He's like, welcome to MTV News. Michael Jackson's head is still smoldering. And it's like, God, it's been three <laughs> weeks, dude. But we'd still watch it. Like, I wonder if he's okay. Is this going to impact the tour? Hey, is his brother playing the Lincoln Park Ballroom this weekend? Right. <sighs> it's good that he donated the money. The news sucks. Moving on to the 28th. January the 28th of 1980, the original ants from the punk rock band Adam and the Ants are swept away by Malcolm McLaren. <laughs> so Adam and the Ants was a went on to be very popular. They were uh, my at the favorite time. band of the early 80s. Oh, yeah. At the time, they were just kind of like an underground punky band. They featured uh, two drummers and very kind of like tribal beats. Yes. Burundi drums is what they called those. And then Malcolm McLaren had just kind of like was dealing with the breakup of the Sex Pistols and he had nothing else to do other than his little 
weird solo career. Round the outside. Round the outside. <laughs> I was just going to start to say, yeah, Buffalo Gals, which I love. And yeah. uh, the Double Dutch song, which I also loved. Yes. So but, Still listen to those songs, Bill. Yeah. Still listen to them. You did. Nobody else did. I so, know. Um, <laughs> so Malcolm McLaren stole the ants away from Adam and the Ants and formed another band with a 14-year-old singer named Annabella Lewin. Yes. And that band was called Bow Wow Wow. Yes. Who went on to have a, a big hit song with, I Want, with their cover of I Want Candy. Yes. And that's the only song of theirs that I remember. I guess they had other singles in, in Great Britain that were really popular, but... Well, they had another song that was popular, too, called Do You Want to Hold Me, which is a really, really, really super catchy song. Honestly, go find, download, stream, whatever it takes, the uh, like the best of, like a greatest hits of Bow Wow Wow. You can't go wrong. It's really... They really a, were a good band. No, I don't doubt that at all. I, I remember the controversy over the cover because they recreated like a... Was it like a Manet painting with the girl yeah. naked on the cover, but she's like covering herself up. And it's like, isn't she 14? I don't know that you can put a 14-year-old naked girl on a cover of a record. Yeah, and they also recreated uh, Goldfinger too, where she was covered in gold paint, paint, gold and, com- paint. and completely naked too. Yeah. 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 Just a little bit problematic. Yeah, that was the well. I mean, it was Malcolm McLaren. Yeah, uh, you know, he, he lived off of controversy. Right. I mean, but everybody profited in the end because Adam Ant had to go out and find you know three or four new ants for his Adam and the Ants band, and then they put out the Kings of the Wild Frontier album. Yes. Which early MTV, the Ant music video was insanely popular. Oh, I, I loved absolutely it. Absolutely loved Adam yeah. and the Ants. Yep, same here. They were my favorite band from 1981 to like 1983. I could not get enough of them. They were probably my first favorite band after Kiss. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Kiss was my favorite band from the time I started listening to them in like 78 until they just were so out of fashion that... I didn't really listen to them anymore. And right. They weren't putting out great albums at that time anyway. Yes. Uh, so Adam and the Ants became like my first favorite band post-Kiss. Yeah. I must have drawn the little ant with the uh, Indian headdress on it 400 million thousand times as a child to listening to, to Prince Charming. Yeah. I didn't get a chance to see Adam Ant until way, 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 way later in life. Uh, I was supposed to go see him in 1994, but somebody in his band got like bronchitis and they had to cancel the last couple of dates, which included mine. I still have the ticket stub. Mm -hmm. God damn it. I have since got to see him. He's done a couple of tours after his bouts with uh, depression. But yeah, I've actually got to see him five times and twice I get to see him in Florida. I've never had the opportunity to see Adam Ant. At some point, I'll probably try to. Not to capture the joy of my youth, but to see what he's like live. I've always wanted uh, to see that. Uh, he, he plays, he sounds excellent. He's got a great band behind him. The, the uh, A bunch of young guys, you know, comparatively mm-hmm. speaking. And he does the double drummers too, still. Oh, nice. Yep. Yeah, it definitely sounds like, sounds like something I would dig. All right, wrapping up the week. January 29th. Bill, are you familiar with the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation? Yes, because when I was a kid, I used to watch Benny Hill and The Young Ones. Well, a compare a, a companion to the TV network that is the British Broadcasting Corporation. There has been a for years, decades even before that, was BBC Radio, BBC One. Okay, yeah. Since 1942, a show has been running on BBC Radio called Desert Island Discs. The concept 42. of the, 1942 is still running, 75 wow. some odd years, right? 
Jesus. Uh, yeah, he was on that show. His eight discs <laughs> were, uh, please don't nail me to the cross. Uh, no, uh, anyway, um, the concept of the show is relatively simple. They would bring on celebrities of major and minor status, and they'd ask them simply, what eight records, musical records, albums, yep. or singles would you bring to a deserted island? What would you oh. want with you if you were stranded on a deserted island? Oh, all right. And it's okay, a game. Yeah. That we've, I mean, we've had conversations like this, you and I, and didn't know. Oh, I didn't sure. know that it was a TV show. I mean, a radio show. Yeah, I think everybody has had that conversation. And I don't right? know if you would, I would go as far as eight, but yeah, like what five, what five CDs would you bring? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. CD number well, one: How to make yeah. boats. CD number <laughs> two: How to find things to make boats on deserted islands. CD number three: The Gilligan's Island soundtrack. It's in the zeitgeist, I guess, enough that on the the last of Radiohead's records, assuming they never put another one out, because they probably won't, there's mm-hmm. a song called Desert Island Disc, which which is one of the better tracks on the record. Tom York does not count off the records that he wants to take to a deserted island with him in the song. Would you bring that album as one of your eight? Uh, that one? No. Ah, ironic. <laughs> I would bring several of their other albums, though. Oh. So there's that. How about you? If I'm not the, not that we have to talk about this in any detail now, I could. Mm. I, I bet uh, of the Marillion collection you have, which of those yes. would you bring with you? Ooh. Even though it's been so many years since the original lead singer has left, I would bring Misplaced Childhood simply because out of forty-five minutes, there isn't one bad minute on that yeah. album. Right. It's yeah, it's flawless. Solid pick. Um, yeah, and. I would also go with the album Marbles for two reasons. One, another album with the majority of it is flawless. There's a couple of minutes on it that aren't my favorite, but it's also a double album. So that counts as one. I don't care. It does, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So awesome. So, yeah. And maybe, just maybe, I would bring that first Adam and the Ants album. Um, mm. Well, first American, not the uh, not the one that was released in England with the yeah. old ants. So, oh, Hey, you know what album I could bring? I could bring a Cheap Trick album, Jeff, because moving on to the celebrity birthdays. (laughs) (laughs) January the 23rd, 1953, the lead singer of Cheap Trick, Robin Zander. You may know him from such songs as The Flame, which we talked about (laughs) (laughs) not long ago, all the worst songs ever. Yeah. Uh, You would know him primarily from probably I Want You to Want Me, and the Dream Police, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We did spend a lot of time talking about Cheap Trick a couple of weeks ago, but Robin Zander and Cheap Trick, they're still out there, they're still touring, they're still playing, seemingly haven't lost much over the years. No. Just a, a solid rock band. Yes, uh, irrespective of who the bass player is. <laughs> and All right, on moving drums. on. Uh, January 24th, 1917. That date in mind. Okay. Uh, Ernest Borgnine is born. Ernest Borgnine is a character actor, kind of, but he had leading mm-hmm. man qualities back in like the 1950s and the late 1950s and early 1960s where he was amongst the top build in things like The Dirty Dozen and yep. Marnie and some other films and parlayed his super great acting skills and rather unique appearance into a very long, very you, you can't even read his IMDb in one day. It's how long it is career yep. in both cinema and television. And when you say television, for a guy that was born in 1917, one of my favorite things about Ernest Borgnine is he always played against type and even made fun of himself by playing himself on an episode of The Simpsons. Yep. He also was the voice of Mermaid Man 
Oh, was he? On SpongeBob SquarePants. Yes. So even my children know who Ernest Borgnine is because oh, they no know kidding. who they knew who Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy are. Yes. Yeah, I primarily know him from McHale's Navy in syndication. But yes. holy Christ, dude, I'm on his IMDb now. And not only is his movie list extensive. His, his TV like, list is giant, too. His uh, No, his, his biography and trivia yep. is completely, ridiculously uh, verbose. Yes. Yep, and then just browsing through uh, his IMDb movie list, which is extensive, over 200 uh, roles. A lot of it is all character actor stuff, yep. like Murder, Murder She Wrote and yep. Magnum P.I., which we'll talk about in a, in a bit. But uh, the thing that sticks out in my mind was he was in Super Fuzz. Yes. Yes, he was. <laughs> Super Fuzz. And he was also in Escape from New York. He was a cab driver. Yep. Cabby. Yeah. Yep. All right. Moving on to the 25th. January 25th, 1955, a man by the name of Toru Iwatani, who was uh, the man or one of the men responsible for what would later be the worldwide unbelievable video game phenomenon known as Pac-Man. Yes. A very uh, addictive and playable quarter muncher. I mean, there was other quarter muncher video games prior to Pac-Man. I mean, Space Invaders precedes that. Obviously, Pong does too by about 10 years. But right. but Pac-Man really, 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 really brought like the arcade to a go-to destination for teenagers. Yes. It was one of the early games that was not gender-defined. Like Space War was seems like a game for dudes. Yeah. Death Race 2000, same thing. And Pac-Man just wasn't. And it was a game. That was the first game I remember seeing like girls lined up to play at yeah. Dream Machine or whatever, you know? Yeah, Dream Machine, Hot Wheels, the roller skating rink. Right, yeah. It wasn't overly complicated. You didn't really need like instructions. It was like right. move the guy around, eat the dots, eat the big dots, eat the ghosts. Yeah. Uh, I remember when Miss Pac-Man came out because they yeah, were, me too. once again, like you had said, Pac-Man, it didn't really cater to girls, but it opened up the market to girls. Right. Yep. And then Miss Pac-Man, they just like said, all right, girls, come on in. And Miss Pac-Man was a huge hit as well. Yeah, it had more It had more mazes, which I liked. I, yeah. I liked Miss Pac-Man much more than Pac-Man for that reason. Yep. All right. Moving on to the 26th. Sixth. Sixth. January 26, oh. 1955. Guitar player extraordinaire and leader of Eddie Van Halen and the Van Halen Brothers Band. <laughs> Van Halen, yeah. Eddie Van Halen. Yes. Probably best known for his iconic, weird-looking, stripey Kramer guitar. I guess the Kramer is the brand that they sold with his endorsement. I don't know if he plays a Fender or if it was an actual Kramer that he was playing, but uh, definitely you can tell when you hear a record that Eddie Van Halen has played on or is playing on because no yes. one else on Earth has ever to this date, it's created the same sounds that he has. Yeah, uh, Eddie Van Halen, I mean, obviously he wasn't the first, you know, amazing guitar player, you know, that's 10 years before uh, Van Halen came around. I mean, Jimi Hendrix was a thing and all yeah, that. Yeah, Ted Nugent, you know. and Yeah, Eddie Van Halen, in, uh, for Generation X anyway, was the first real guitar superhero. Yeah. Uh, he kind of invented that uh, finger tapping playing style. Yes. 
And the other thing, too, I was just talking about guitar players from that era with my friend Rob, who was a guitar player. Mm-hmm. What I said about all those bands is what I didn't like about that kind of music is that the guitar players, most of the time, they were just playing power chords, which is just a two chord finger, you know, mm-hmm. uh, index finger on the root, next finger down, like one one string down and two str- uh, frets over. And that's like the majority of their playing was all power chords. And he goes, yeah, everybody did that at the time. That's how that's how playing was. He goes, you know who didn't do that? Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. That guy played full chords. He was one of the few guys in metal that played full chords like that. He played guitar like he played like a drummer because he was a drummer before Originally, he was a guitar yes, player. Yeah. Makes use of the whole fretboard and the whole, the whole span of notes that you could possibly play and string together. Mm-hmm. It's what made his his sound so distinctive. Uh, again, I've never heard anyone who plays. Even when people play like Eddie Van Halen, they still don't sound like Eddie Van Halen to me. Famously, the guitar solo in Michael Jackson's "Beat It" that was Eddie Van Halen. It was indeed. Yep. All right, moving on to the twenty seventh, January the twenty seventh, nineteen forty four. Nick Mason, who was the drummer uh, for Pink Floyd, and oh. Uh, the only member of Pink Floyd that was consistently in their lineup. Right. I think he might be the only member of Pink Floyd that doesn't hate Roger Waters <laughs> right now. Still. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's only one other member of Pink Floyd. Yes. Because yes. Richard Wright is, Wright is uh, dead. I think Richard yeah. Wright hated Roger Waters, though, when he was alive. Yeah. He probably haunts uh, Roger yeah, I, Waters now. You know? Yeah, the feeling was mutual. Uh, yes. Nick Mason... Uh, I get to see Nick Mason live uh, mm-hmm. outside of Pink Floyd. He played the Boston Orpheum in what was called Nick Mason and the Saucer Full of Secrets, oh. which was a really, really cool show if you're a Pink Floyd fan. And now right. I dissect this sentence by because I tell people and they say, oh, I love Pink Floyd. I'm like, okay, wait. Which Pink Floyd Pink? do you like? Yeah. yeah. Do you like Pink Floyd or do you like the six songs that they play on the radio? Because it's a huge difference. Um, so if you're a Big Floyd fan, and I know you are, the Nick Mason show that I saw, the most recent song was off of Metal, which is the album that came out before, before yeah, Dark, Dark Side, of, Side the of the Moon. Yeah. And they played One of These Days off of that. And the only reason why they played that is because the One of These Days, I'm going to cut you into little pieces is vocalized by Nick Mason. Right. But the rest of all the stuff that they did was all like, you know, early singles. Yeah, see Emily play, right, and... Point Me at the Sky, yeah. Yeah, it was a fantastic show. And you can find like a live album from it on streaming services. If you can find it, listen to it. It's really, really good. I will check it out. I saw Nick Mason live too, but I saw him when he was drumming for Pink Floyd at Foxborough Stadium in like 1989 or something when they did Mm -hmm. the uh, Delicate Sound of, or the Momentary Lapse of Reason tour. He was about the size of an atom from where where I was sitting. And he finished drumming a half an hour before I heard the last note. That's how far away I was. Right. (laughs) If you pick up any of his solo albums, like if you listen to any of the Pink Floyd band members' solo albums outside of Floyd, the Nick Mason stuff is really very interesting. Probably the most interesting of all of them. I'll have to check it out. I like Nick Mason. All right. Next up. January 28th, 1959. Film director Frank Darabont is born. and he's I probably, don't know who that is. He's probably best known for primarily adapting Stephen King adaptations like The Shawshank Redemption. He directed oh. that. 
He was the producer of the first year of The Walking Dead. He has done a whole bunch of other films as well that hew into both prestige pictures, but mostly really well-made horror films that have a literary bend to them. So, for somebody whose name I didn't know, I certainly know his body of work. The Shawshank Redemption comes in and out of first place as the best Best movie movie ever ever made. made, Yeah. on uh, the IMDb Top 100, which is, it is, it's, it's a fantastic movie. I mean, it's a fantastic story to start off with, mm-hmm. but very, very well directed. And The Walking Dead, you can't, you know, deny its popularity. And the first several seasons were very well done. So, oh, well. Yep. He got knocked out, I think, at the end of the second season for budgetary reasons. And then they uh-huh. they made the, they gave the show running to the creator of the comic book, whose name escapes me at the moment. That's because mm-hmm. I stopped watching it not long after like two seasons or so after that sure he also produced graveyard shift he also produced apt pupil and some other stuff that was all drawn from stephen king's body of work that's who he's most known for oh for for working with but a uh, great great director oh yeah I've, I've been meaning to go back and watch apt pupil actually so wrapping up the birthdays january the 29th 1945 oh he's just a year a year younger than nick mason look at that <laughs> American actor and mustache enthusiast Tom Selleck. Oh, probably nice. best known for his role in Three Men and a Baby. And Oh <laughs> and and Runaway. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Probably best known for <laughs> Runaway. Sorry, Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons is the villain, yeah. Yeah. Who ran off to mutilate Michael Jackson. <laughs> yes. Tom Selleck's a primarily known as being a TV star, though he he made some good films. Yeah. He made some films that are less good, like Alan Quarterman in The Lost City of Gold, which is a Raiders of the Lost Ark knockoff. That's me setting you up there, Bill. But he also did uh, Quigley Down Under, which is a fantastic revisionist Western set in Australia that is one of my favorite Australian films uh, ever made. So, fun facts. Uh, So, Tom Selleck is going to be best known for his work on television's detective show or crime show, whatever it was, Magnum P.I. Yes. he was actually uh, written, the part was written with him in mind, he was supposed to be Indiana Jones. Yes. And he actually, you know, he came down, did the act, uh, the screen test and all that stuff for Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But whatever television studio he was working for said, ah, 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 we got you under contract to do Magnum P.I., which hadn't even aired yet. But <laughs> Yep. They had him under contract to do Magnum P.I. And he was like, oh, sh-, because he knew he was th- throwing away a fortune by not doing Raise the Lost Ark. And that, right. you know, famously went to Harrison Ford. And life took a great turn that way because, you know, it's not like he lost money because Magnum P.I. was hugely successful and it had right. a long run. It did have a long run. It was very successful. It stood out even among the myriad of imitators that that had followed it. Even up to and including, I think, Miami Vice didn't last anywhere near as long as Magnum P.I. did on the air. And they mm. shared a lot of similarities. And that was very popular. But there were tons of shows that were like Magnum P.I. Yeah. Effectively, the, you know, the sort of ersatz cop show with the guy that used to be a cop and now isn't a cop anymore. And he's got like kind of weird sidekick with a funny accent. And all of a sudden, bing, bang, boom, there's helicopters. And depending on where the show is set, exotic locations. Also, if you look at Chippendales, like the Rescue Rangers there on Disney, one is wearing... A Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, and the other one is dressed up like Indiana Indiana Jones, Jones. which is a a real kind of like, hey guys, check me out, kind of like little nod. 
And also, to Tom Selleck's advantage, he didn't have to do uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is... <laughs> Which is a theatrical version of the worst song ever. Okay, Jeff, your turn to uh, nominate the worst song ever, I and know. I had a day thanks to you. But go ahead. I know you did. Well, okay, so today our theme for today's worst song ever, as, as everyone who listens to the show knows, I'm, I'm thematic in, in mm-hmm. my picks for these, is a band, admittedly, that I like. I buy their records when they are released, irrespective of quality. <laughs> this probably says more about me than it does about them. But in the course of a long career, their evolution as a band has changed considerably to the point where I don't know what they are meant to be anymore, and what they're doing now isn't very good. And I don't know who the audience for them is. And we're talking, uh, of course, when I yeah. describe it that way, we're talking about the modern-day U2 or Coldplay. All right, I was about to ask, you know, you've, you've talked for like two minutes straight now, and I don't know who you're talking about yet. Yeah, we're talking about Coldplay, and which song in particular are we talking about? Specifically, we're talking about the lead single from their newest record, Music of the Spheres, called Ugh, Higher Power. This, listening to this song, initially, like, if you bump into the song on the radio, it usually comes between things that are maudlin. It'll be like Phoebe Bridgers or Hozier and then this song. And this song fits in well kind of with those because it's up-tempo and uh-huh. it's a little bit more happy than Phoebe Bridgers and a little bit less yelly than Hozier, right? And it fits in well. But if you just buy the record and listen to like the album, mm-hmm. it's like having somebody beat you up with Twizzlers. It sucks. <laughs> and it's it's like sickeningly sweet and it doesn't have any like substance. One of the things with Coldplay as a band is – Chris Martin, he's a guy with a lot of self-deprecating humor. He's always said, I'm not a very good piano player. He's a pretty good piano player. I'm not a very good guitar player. He's a pretty good guitar player. I'm not a very good songwriter. No argument for me there. (laughs) As they've grown as a band, more and more people get involved in the songwriting process because Chris Martin is not a very good songwriter. The problem is he writes songs with people who are also not very good songwriters, at least based on the output that I see. So honestly... I have very, very little exposure to Coldplay. Yes. I remember years ago when they first started coming around, you gave me a copy of one of their discs because you were so high on it. You know, like you you have to listen to these guys. And there was another guy that I used to hang around with. He was trying to sell them to me too using the the oldest trick in the book. Oh, you'll like them. They're like Marillion. They're not (laughs) like Marillion at all. But the way they were sold to me is that they were a more pop- sensible version of like a prog rock band, which I guess you could kind of make that argument with their earlier stuff. Like the only song from them I really knew was a song called Clocks. Yeah. That was a big hit at the time. But to me, Coldplay was just like, they were just a band. I I don't really know anybody that was like super into them. And then I'm like looking up their stuff on Spotify. Oh my God, dude. They got (laughs) like, yeah, they got like 60 million some odd listens every month. That's a lot. That's a they, lot of listens. 
they do like stadium size tours that sell out. I don't I don't know who goes to see them. I don't know. They didn't I don't think they toured much on this record. No, the reason they're not they actually said they're not going to tour on this record and they're not going to tour on any forthcoming record because Coldplay is very very environmentally uh, aware. Uh-huh. Um, they're super super I don't want to say liberal because that's not the type of people that tend to be environmentally aware mm-hmm. as Coldplay is also tend to be liberal, but it has this has nothing to do with that. Right. They have pledged years back 10% of their profits go to charities and they've maintained that. Right. That's that's not changed. And Chris Martin, uh, in the interviews I was watching to learn more about this band that I somehow don't know much about, said that they're not going to tour on this album and they're not going to have any forthcoming tours until they can find a way to do it with you know more sustainability. Right. Uh, they don't. Yeah, because touring leaves. I mean, with all the trucks and this, that, and the other, leaves way too big of an, uh, a carbon footprint for our friend Chris Martin, apparently. Right. Well, I mean, considering the band is more than just Chris Martin, you wouldn't know that, though, by listening to the last couple of records. But it's Guy Ber- uh, Guy Berryman, John Bucklin, Will Champion, and Chris Martin, and they're a rock yeah. and roll band. If you listen to sure. their first couple of records, it's clearly a four-piece, like, sort of radio-ready alternative slash late Britpop stuff. But right. everything that's on the last couple of records is like, it's imagine 17 clones of Charlie Puth all producing <laughs> yeah. these records together. So. Yeah, the, the new album did sound a lot like Charlie Puth stuff. Yeah, it, it, it's probably because every song has, except for one, the one that doesn't have any other writers on it, is called Music of the Spheres 2, which I think is a, literally an instrumental that lasts like seven seconds. <laughs> is They're written by multiple people along with Coldplay. So the producer of this record is Max Martin. I'm not sure what he's known for, but he's worked with Charlie Puth, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> There's a, a mix of people who are writing these songs with Coldplay. And I'm saying with Coldplay, with two big quotation marks around with. I think they're writing them for Coldplay. And then Chris Martin is recording them. And the rest of the band is like, so we we just get checks? Huh? We don't have to touch the – I don't have to play drums? Like, I just – I'm still in the band, right? I, I, can I – I can get a part-time job, you know? And Yeah, they, they, yeah they've kind of taken the Maroon 5 model go and gone right. forward with it. Yeah. Yeah. Now – I'm looking over here at this at this album that Higher Power is on, and a good four or five songs uh, are not titled. They have either symbols or yeah. planets as their titles. Yes, that, and, makes, that makes my car stereo very happy when it tries to render yeah. <laughs> those things. And here is a, a, a Sin Amongst Man. You know, I, like I said, I don't know much about Coldplay, so I looked up and was reading, and their second full-length album... Uh, called The Rush of Blood to the Head, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame put it in their top 200 necessary albums. Yep. The biggest selling song or big, most streams on this album, this new album, is a song called My Universe, which is a collaboration with BTS. Yes, BTS, two-thirds of the song is in Korean. Yeah, the B- BTS is a fucking K-pop band. Yeah. What is... Yeah, I mean, I guess all the prog rock is just completely gone. Well, you'd say that, but there's a song on here. Again, there's one There's one thing that's dropped in every now and then that really, yep. like, shows the quality of the band in general. And, it's, and this record is a song called Coldatura. It's a, yeah, it's a so, good song. Last song on the record. Yeah, last song. Yep. In previous records, generally, like, the second to last or last song is always something that's a little bit longer and more complicated. And that song's really good. 
It's better yep. than anything else on this record. If you were going to show me the song list on this album and say, pick out the prog rock song, I would have said Colorado because it's over 10 minutes long. Yeah, that's why. But, you know, if you pick out the singles, here's where Coldplay as a business plan works. Mm-hmm. So there's higher power. And we've barely talked about that song because there's nothing to talk about. So there's that. But then there's Let Somebody Go with Selena Gomez. Guess who the draw is on that song? Right. Then there's Human Heart with uh, We Are King and Jacob Collier. Guess who the draw is on that song? It's not Chris Martin. And then there's My Universe with BTS. Guess who the draw is with that song? And it's not Chris Martin, who only provides the bridge. There was a song that I listened to that was like the most recent single... And I actually questioned myself. I was like, well, I questioned you silently. I was like, why didn't he pick this song? It's a song called Beautiful, but it's like misspelled. Yeah. It it looks like a child trying to spell it. And then you listen to it, and it sounds like a child playing around with auto-tune just trying to sing it. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know who your target audience is anymore, Coldplay, but... So the target audience for that song is people who like Marshmallow. And <laughs> people do. Like people like Marshmallow like guest produces oh. a ton of records. So Oh, I thought you meant the confection. Sorry. I did not mean the confection. I meant the DJ slash producer who wears a bucket on his head with a marshmallow face yeah. on it. I don't know. That song, yeah, that song sucks, but it it's it's not the one that you hear on the radio. The one you hear on the radio from this record is almost always Higher Power or My Universe. Well, it's hard get to, ready. What's, there's supposed to be some other record that they're going to put out in 2023 that's that's uh-huh. more, I don't want to say nostalgic, but it's more in line with like what the band wants to put out. And and they could tour on if they decided to tour. But I don't know how much, how, how realistic that is. Coldplay's audience is like U2's audience was in the early 2000s. We're like older people that still listen to like contemporary, like older person's pop music. This crosses over to the same like to the kids who listen to BTS and to the kids who listen to Ariana Grande and the kids who listen to Selena Gomez because they've all duetted with Coldplay at one point or another. Same thing with Rihanna. The worst song on the last record was the one that they do with her, which was their biggest single. It's just that when I go back every now and then and listen to like Parachutes or Russia Blood of the Head or even X and Y, the song's structures and production is much more in tune with how I imagine pop rock to work. Like Cheap Trick. The difference between Dream Police as an album and the one with the flame on it as an album is vastly different. Oh, yeah. You know? For sure. Uh, and it's the same with Coldplay. And it's a shame because, I again, I'm somebody I'm a fan of this band. I've bought all their records to this point. Mm-hmm. I have favorite songs on every record, even this crappy record. It's not Higher Power because that song sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those where the band has evolved to the point where I don't know what it is anymore. And it still seems like they're going to continue to trundle on and be huge. Whenever I go back and, and revisit Coldplay, I'm probably going to go back and listen to the album that came out in 2019, Everyday Life. That mm-hmm. that one registered with me. But every time a song came up, I was like, well, this one sucks. I looked at the, my phone to see what album it was. And they were all from the, <laughs> they were all from the album that Higher Power is on. So. Right. All right, so before we wrap up the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Uh Uh-oh. So, no more mammals are allowed in our contest for the largest animal. (laughs) Um, Okay. Yep. What is the largest reptile home to planet Earth? Right. So, okay. Uh, I have to – I remember I asked a clarifying question. Do we mean by length or do we mean by weight? Square footage. Square, Square footage. Come on now. Length or weight? Square footage. Square footage. Yep. 
So, I mean, if you're going to say the uh, reticulating python, which is pretty long, it's also very slender. So, I'm looking for just girth. Girth. So, weight. Uh, yeah, weight. Uh, yeah, we'll say that. All right. So, if it's weight, I'm going to give you two answers here because I'm still not sure how we're measuring God, bigness. Answer the question, Jeff! Uh, <laughs> if it's weight, it's the saltwater crocodile. If it's length, it's the anaconda. All right. The answer is the saltwater crocodile. One in a row. Look at that. Ding, 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 ding. Crikey. Those fuckers can get almost 23 feet long. Right. That's, dude, that is almost the size of a telephone pole. Can yeah, you just imagine a crocodile just like, hey, guys, the yeah. size of a telephone pole? Yeah, they're no huge. No effing thank you. No. Yeah. Uh, anacondas can get to be 30 feet long. Seven right, feet longer. Is, yeah, just slightly longer, but they're not as. Uh, Seven feet girth- is not slightly. Well, percentage-wise it is. Girthy, though. <laughs> yeah. 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 Girthy, though. Yeah, the saltwater crocodile. Saltwater crocodile. So that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Hey, seven days, seven feet, like an anaconda. Right. It don't want none, hon, unless it's got buns. So anyway, uh, we'll see <laughs> We'll see you in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, Bye guys. everybody. A special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends about it. Do it now before the world comes to an end. Any minute. It's coming. Any day now.